Greta. G'day. I'm Dr. Elise Dowden and I am the organizer and founder of the Australasian Post Humanities. We exist to make the humanities radically accessible. And you can find out more at aposthumanities.org. Our seminar series here is organized on the lands of the Bunrung and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation, who we acknowledge as traditional owners and custodians. Paying respects to Indigenous elders past and present, it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. In this seminar, you're going to hear from Magdalena Zolkos, who will talk about organic witnessing, trees, skulls and fossils in Didi Uberman's philosophy of memory. Magdalena Zolkos is a Humboldt Research Fellow at Goethe University Frankfurt, where she's working on a research project on post-colonial artwork repatriation, collective memorialization, and Indigenous philosophies of relatedness. Previously, she was Senior Lecturer at the School of Humanities and Communication Arts at Western Sydney University, and a Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for Social Justice at Australian Catholic University. She also holds a Visiting Honorary Fellowship at the Unit for Global Justice at Goldsmiths, University of London, as part of a collaborative team on a research project on new social imaginaries. Hello and thank you. So let me just start by giving you some context. I am uh, by training a political theorist and I have been working a lot in the field of memory studies. The paper um, is part of a larger project on philosophy of image of Georges Didi Uberman that I've been doing and I'm pursuing it within two venues. One of them is that I'm editing currently an edited volume on Georges Didi Uberman, which is a philosophical dictionary, which is kind of an interesting form, I think, that has a lot of contributors and it's also a little bit longer um, than, than regular academic books, but it doesn't include chapters. It includes about 120 philosophical entries. And the biggest challenge of it was to um, show um, the kind of really broad scope of uh, Didi Uberman's intervention within the field of philosophy, both in philosophy of arts and aesthetics and historiography, for which he's better known, but also more recently, precisely political theory. And then another project from which um, to which this paper directly contributes is actually a monograph, a short monograph on Didi Uberman, which I call um, Exposure and Experience. And it's basically an intervention, again, into political theory debates, about categories of appearance and visibility beyond the human, but also into the field of memory studies, which is where I currently work. And in the paper, you will probably hear more intervention into the former than into the, into the latter. So let me start. The starting point of the paper is to ask about how categories of visuality, appearance, but also materiality intersect in the emergence of alternative and radical public memory projects. I also want to situa situate this inquiry at the background then of cultural memory studies turn away from associating memory and especially something we might call mnemonic agency exclusively with the human subject. And that is a um, and I think that's an intervention that's often associated. I mean there's a really a, a broad field but in Australia, for example, Rosam Kennedy, drawing on Michael Rothberg's idea of multidirectional memory, has developed the concept of multidirectional eco-memory, where she argues that we can think of humans and non-humans, animate and inanimate, as linked within a broader ecological 
which what we could call mnemonic assemblage, which yeah, that's that's a very interesting I think um, idea. Um, speaking uh, more directly within plant philosophy or plant studies, which is another field I'm really interested uh, in, Michael Marder has actually written directly about what he calls more than human or vegetal mnemonic centers of gravity and vegetal or plant keepsakes of memory. So there is, I think, a very interesting attempt in plant philosophy and plant studies to think of memory of plants. The implicit assumption be be behind these critical pursuits and many others is that what is being undone, unraveled, but also critiqued in their course is a broader imaginary, if you like, of inanimate things and lower level organic objects such as trees within the Aristotelian hierarchy of beings, right? So, um, which I think, again, as has been discussed already at length um, from a number of angles, is identified chiefly or identifies chiefly these inanimate and lower level organic items or beings by what they lack or what they are not in relation to the human. So by, so by becoming such secondary signifiers within the sort of Aristotelian tradition, these objects and these beings make it possible for the human to emerge as a proper subject and agent of history. So I very much see this critical intervention post or non-human intervention into memory studies as a way of challenging and undoing that way of thinking. And perhaps a question whether non-humans can be agents um, of history. Though you will see, I also in the paper uh, avoid the language of agency and we can return in the, in the question section why. Um, so the paper asks the question of how visibility, appearance and materiality intersect in the emergence of public memory. And I focus on the work of art historian and philosopher um, George Didier Huberman, who I, whom I have mentioned in the introduction, um, who has attracted, I think, more and more attention in the Anglophone academia recently, or I mean recently within the last decade, um, and perhaps also um, around 2008 when uh, Images in Spite of All, um, I think his most famous, most broadly known book in Anglophone world has been published. So this has been like an accelerated pace of, his, of the translation of his work. Um, I encourage you to, to look it up if you're interested in philosophy of image or, or philosophy of, of memory. And that includes his books um, on art philosophy within what he calls Eye of History series. So it's six books. I think four of them have been translated so far. Um, but I think um, if I could identify a bit of a problem it doesn't refer to all secondary scholarship, but definitely I think has been a mark of uh, how his work has been received in Anglophone academia is that um, those interpretations often, I think, have a very selective focus. So the book that I will, one of the books that I focus on in the paper, which is kind of an, an, a memory essay called Bark that considers trees as memory objects is often read outside of the context of his broader art historiography or philosophy of image. What I do in the paper is I will read Bark together with another book, which was published about 15 years earlier called Being a Skull. And I read them dialogically, if you like, 
that is in relation to one another, but also in relation to more theoretical um, work and especially a, a book called The Surviving Images, which is even written even earlier, about 20 years ago, um, which is Didi Obermann's most rigorous book on Abby Warburg. Yeah, and I can say maybe more about Warburg if you want in question time, but he's kind of a, um, is Freud's contemporary. So that book is both on Warburg and Freud. He's Roy, Freud's contemporary who never read Freud and um, a big intervention in memory studies, uh, primarily from the Germanic tradition and art historiography. And Didi Ubermann in that book tries to read them together, Freud and Warburg, connecting Warburg's idea of survival, Nachleben, something that survives or is stuck in memory and articulates, manifests itself affectively, uh, or he uses the idea of emotive uh, formula and, and Freud's concept of a symptom. And what I suggest is that in this kind of contextual and dialogical reading of, um, if you like, different memory items in Didi Ubermann's work, a focus is drawn to um, imaginal modes, uh, to the imaginal, a register of the imaginal, or how things appear to appearance as a mode of um, a kind of drawing attention to what has been historically repressed and disappeared in history, but has nevertheless survived, right? And um, a way of entry point into it would be to point to Didi Ubermann's attention to some of the binary formulations, so that even though I wouldn't classify him as a post-humanist, that is definitely something that Didi Ubermann shares with um, the field of post-humanities, which this is this kind of project of undoing some of the foundational boundaries of Western metaphysics. And specifically, then I would, that would, the one that I will focus on is a, a distinction or a binary of surface and depth. What Didi Obermann problematizes is an identification of surface um, with, if you like, shallowness or superficiality, um, with its meaning reduced, the meaning of surface reduced primarily to sort of function of providing a protective or enclosing envelope to something precious that hides beneath it, right? And so what we have on the other side of that secondary signifier that surface is, is basically the concept of depth or core as a locus of profundity, of um, some kind of secret and concealed meaning, perhaps best exemplified by the Christian idea of a soul, right, of human soul, as something precious, invisible, that hides within the human body. By calling attention in the paper to Didi Obermann's critical reappraisal of surface as a site of appearance and reappearance, of visibility and manifestation, but also of plasticity, which, which I discuss a bit later in the paper, I also suggest that there are productive possibilities of reading his intervention in relation to some of the contemporary critical theorists of surface. So um, um, again, a work that um, happened in the 90s, Judy Butler's work on performative that casts, I think, surface as a site of gendering and sexuation of bodies. So that I think you know, it's a definitely interesting way of reading Butler's earlier work as a, as a critique of the surface depth binary too. 
but also uh, Foucault's concept of disciplinary power and post-humanist positions in plant philosophy. And again, Michael Marder's work um, that postulates that sort of this, um, what we could call normalized practices of mass plant destruction by the human world has to do partly with a dominant understanding of plants as precisely surface objects, right? Or Michael Marder has a really powerful phrase of um, calling um, our understanding of plants as beings, okay? More like object-like beings, but the ones that are bereft of interiority, right? Or as soulless uh, beings. What my reading um, of Didi Uberman helps to grasp is I think that um, Didi Uberman invokes surface as an aesthetic, historiographic concept, but also as phenomenological register of connections, intersections, and in-betweenness uh, of humans and, and non-humans as regards public memory. And it does indeed, the so surface for Didi Uberman does indeed reveal something, right? So he does kind of in some ways stick to the idea that surface is connected to appearance, to visibility. But it's not as in Butler's critique, uh, some kind of presumed hidden essence of the subject or object, but rather surface makes visible that that has been blocked, lost or repressed in history. So in this sense for Didi Uberman, it's a site of plastic inscription upon material beings and objects of past connections and their proximities and adherences, if you like, to historical events. Um, the two uh, seemingly unrelated objects in the paper are photographs of tree fragments, and I'll show those images in a moment, of birch birches that Didi Uberman sort of peels off trees, those bark fragments, right, pieces of bark, peels of, of bark, when he visits the former Auschwitz-Birkenau camp, at present, of course, uh, uh, an icon of memory, uh, and the other objects are sketches and sculptures of human skulls. I call them arboreal and cranial surfaces or, material, uh, or arboreal and cranial memory objects. And I argue that for Didi Uberman, they have that in common, that they are both organized, if you like, by their fossil-like logic. So they are bearers of what he calls heterogeneous time and expressions of panochristic forms, both concepts he takes from Warburg's, from, from Abby Warburg. The object plasticity is understood um, in this context as a capacity to fossilize, right? That doesn't mean that sort of trace preservation within the objects is something like a mortifying act, again, kind of a, a dominant understanding of fossil, something that has died, right? But rather it's actually paradoxically a marker of survival and of temporality that is best approximating by the concept of haunting. So for Didi Uberman, these objects are a bit like ghosts. They have a bit of a ghostly uh, or phantasmal presence, spectral presence, if you like, that poses a challenge to um, a broader challenge to historiography based on concepts of linearity, right? That history and writing of history is about periods that come and go and remain largely uncontaminated by one another. 
so let me start by showing you um, the, the one of the opening image images. Uh, so Bark is a short essay that includes also photographs that Didi Uberman takes at, at uh, Auschwitz Museum. And this is, um, as I said, and one of the opening photographs in it, arboreal fragments ripped from the birch trees and subsequently kind of arranged on a blank piece of paper. And what this image is meant to do um, for the reader, it's almost like a bit of a, you could imagine um, a Freudian analysis, analysis process. It's meant to activate a chain of associations, right? Um, between bark and script, because you, you have a piece of paper, which also I think is underwritten by an etymological intervention in the book. So it's not that visible in English. I think it is if you use a, a botanical, professional botanical vocabulary, but largely we would use bark. Uh, we only have that one term to describe the item. But in Latin, there are two um, words for bark. One is scortea, and it means basically a cloak, coat or garment. And it's also, um, it's derived from an Indo-European um, term to scare or scare, which means to cut into. And that's the external layer of the bark. So that's interesting. It's an object uh, defined by our capacity to cut into it. But there is also a second uh, word in Latin for bark, which is liber, right? So the um, a word that, um, is present in the English language in the word uh, like a library, so a word for book, paper, and that is the internal layer of bark, and that's the, the part that has been used by the cultures that used bark as a writing material precisely as, the, as, a, as a medium or as a material for recording past. So you can imagine that the entry point into thinking about bark or trees as a memory object is both that image and then this kind of etymological, I call it an etymological intervention that amount to a proposition that there is something like that we could think about something like inanimate or biotic memory affordance to present Bark as a figure of instability of the depth and surface distinction, right? And that has to do with this visual and narrative emphasis on Bark's polyvocality. So you've got two names, but also you've got an ambiguity emerging, right? So simultaneously Bark is simultaneously a side of separation, the capacity to peel off the Bark layers uh, and to think when the dead matter, right? The ossified, if you like, uh, layers and the inner living core of the tree, when does one start and the other begin? Didi Obermann calls bark or categorizes bark as one of objects, he calls it objects made of surfaces, right? And this, uh, again, why that's why it's interesting to read it in, his, in the larger context of his work, because he uses this phrase elsewhere in contexts that perhaps make it more obvious when he writes about paper and especially about photographs, right? So Didi Obermann is a philosopher of photographic image. Um, and when you think about the book that I have mentioned before, Images in Spite of All, which is an analysis of four uh, preserved archival images uh, made by members of the Zonderkommando in Auschwitz. 
um, he exactly calls those photographs surface objects or objects made of surfaces as well. So there is a kind of a, a, a I wouldn't say similarity, but again, uh, almost like a Freudian association between photograph and bark. That's so important for his argument. What these objects made of surfaces also have in common is the extent to which they are, if you like, endowed what we might call a mnemonic affordance in a very literal sense. So bark, photograph, paper are basically storing or have been historically storing or recording material. The question in bark is how and in what light then must we look at the bark, right? So the, if you like, the question is on us, the receiver or the viewer of the bark, in order to be able to see that that object is inscribed by history in order to see it as a witness, right? So how must we look at the bark so that its testimonial inscriptions become apparent to us? Um, it's kind of potential for arboreal witnessing to the past or the way that bark fossilizes the past. Um, let me take a step back uh, and bring witnessing into the discussion then. Um, recent interventions uh, within continental philosophies, philosophy, but also uh, elsewhere, have um, focused on the problematic of witnessing um, from the uh, perspective of the important kind of um, dissociation or separation of a testimony from its court-like or juridical meaning, right, in which testimony and witnessing is understood as act of producing an objective proof, right? So something that the witness is able to produce to situate her or his words um, beyond any doubt, right? So to prove that what they're saying is true in some objective way. And so um, in continental philosophy that is associated often with um, um, I think quite rightly, with the, a beautiful book by Jacques Derrida, where he reads Paul Celan's um, poetry and exactly kind of suggests um, that you, have, you could have two words um, in Greek for witness. <laughs> it's interesting. I haven't noticed before that um, maybe that's something similar to what Didi Uberman does with Bark, that Derrida does with witness. And he says that the, the kind of um, the second meaning for witness beyond the one that like speaks the truth and produces the, 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 the objective proof is the one that comes as a third, right? So the, 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 the number three, third, is actually inscribed in the, in the word witness. And what Derrida says is that um, from that perspective, there is something about the witness that needs, makes us, makes us um, think or should make us think about proximity to history, being, being there, if you like. Right? So the testimonial speech act, if I can use that uh, term for Derrida, is basically um, an interpolation or a plea to the one that hears the testimony, hear me, believe me, I have been there, I've seen it. Right? And that's why I'm telling the truth, not because I can produce an object that will uh, prove my credibility. You need to trust me. You need to. You need to believe me. And in listening to the witness, 
for Derrida. And that's, I think, um, a really interesting part of his intervention. There was always a possibility of being deceived by the witness. So let me take that into the discussion of Didi Uberman, um, of his idea of trees and plants, other plants and inanimate objects that he finds at Auschwitz-Birkenau. There's also geological objects in that book. The tree spark is the main one. When he situates them as Holocaust witnesses without um, referring to Derrida, he is, I think, invoking precisely the same relation of proximity and, and um, material even proximity. So if you like adherence, right? And he talks about sticking to the surface of historical events or even objects that constitute surfaces of events when he writes about the crematorium furnace, for example. So Didi Obermann um, articulates that point in relation to Warburg's concepts of fossil, of fossil of, or, or history fossilized in objects. And what he's subsequently able to do is to think of witnessing them as a trace or, or fossil in a very material sense. So basically as an, act, an actual footprint or even a vestige, right? Uh, of which the condition of possibility is plasticity of these materials, so plasticity of bark. But um, he takes this point farther in um, being a skull that I will return to, that basically plasticity is um, an aspect of any material being. So no matter how hard uh, you could talk about plasticity, but here plasticity of trees, plasticity of bark. Plasticity, uh, Didi Ubermann says, is I quote, that which yields a trace and for that reason, another quote, um, be, is capable of, of becoming a memory, of returning, of a renaissance, of rebirth, end of quote. So together with geological objects such as soil or river, the vegetal communities at present-day Auschwitz have incorporated within their organic and inorganic matter the human tissue of bodies burned and turned to ash. Okay. So just, uh, I'll let you digest that. Um, and this observation that he makes of, if you like, material continuity between the dead human bodies and the current vegetal ones opens a way to a rather striking statement that Didi Uberman then makes about victims. He says, the destruction of the people does not mean that they are departed. Then uh, he kind of looks at or considers trees, bark, and plants and says about the, the humans, he says, they are here, they are indeed here, here in the flowers of the fields, um, here in the birches. Um, as much as it might be tempting, I think, to see a um, proximity between Didi Uberman and post-humanist philosophy um, in terms of the focus on the concept of plasticity and um, Catherine Malibu's and, and sort of that tradition. And we can return to this in the questions if you like. Um, I think there are also quite significant differences, um, but perhaps some resonances to consider, maybe some, some overlaps. Um, what I would instead suggest is that um, there is actually something um, quite similar to Michel Foucault's project that's, that, that is going here, but perhaps 
uh, extends uh, Foucault's work both to a different set of institutions, but also again to different um, uh, items or, or subjects of, of history. And in fact, Didi Obermann has written um, a contribution about his debt to Foucault and also his conflict um, with Foucault that has to do with their approach to psychoanalysis. But again, that's another story. Um, in a volume very recently published uh, called Foucault Against Himself, um, that is something that uh, you, have, you have seen, uh, where he identifies Foucault as one of his central um, influences, right? Um, but he also identifies as one of Foucault's central questions, you know, how dominant discourses and practices determine the emergence of objects. And, and he wants to think about visibility, emergence as visibility what appears to us, what we, are, what we are able to see. And from this perspective, I think the reason why I'm even bringing this, and I know I've uh, kind of multiplied uh, references here, so I'm sorry if this is becoming a bit much. I uh, see Bark as a critique of the institution of a museum, okay? And it might not be that apparent, but I think um, that uh, also shows what, you know, focusing on those non-human memory objects can do as a, as a critical intervention. And more specifically, how um, the institution of a museum is tied to officially sanctioned and approved ways of seeing and also of, waking, of, of, made, of ways of making appear. So if you like ways of imagining the past and how that becomes inseparable or is inseparable in its turn to ways of making disappear, okay? So um, to be, I know this is quite abstract, but to be a bit more specific in the context of Auschwitz, what Didi Obermann finds quite striking, what is, if you like, his first thought when he appears before he even looks at the tree, uh, is a question about disappearance. And the disappearance of Auschwitz as a, he uses the term, the disappearance of Auschwitz as a place of barbarism, as a condition of, the emergence of Auschwitz as a place of culture. So in other words, the relation between the camp and the museum, right? And how it's inscribed uh, within the very possibility of memory, the disappearance uh, of a place of barbarism. And that's, a, and that's a problematic thing, right, for him, because he is more interested in ways in which we can think about how the place of barbarism is still here, is fossilized, or continuous rather than is um, put an end to. I think that's also a critique, if you like, of, of human rights discourse, but that's, a, that's, um, that's just something on the side. The political and aesthetic commitments to what he calls building a memory of Auschwitz involves for him risks and dangers of its signification as something beyond human capacity to imagine and visualize as well as that which is inscribed within a monotemporal modality. The very condition of possibility of memorialization of Auschwitz is that it is no longer, that it is in the past. Another way of putting it is by invoking the lens of the depth and surface dichotomy. Uh, in images in spite of all, so the, the book on the images, Auschwitz images, which famously includes Didi Ubermann's polemic with uh, Claude Lanzmann's Shoah, birch trees also appear, only in passing, 
Um, but here they are indeed surface of the camp in a binary sense. So uh, birch trees in the image of the camp are considered insofar as they actually historically and very deliberately constituted the surface of the camp, right? So they were an envelope of it and they protected what was going on inside, if you like, from view and from rendering them visible. And uh, so Didi Uberman kind of refers to a very striking fact that except uh, some very far off aerial images, so the ones that were taken by planes flying over, we don't have a single photographic image of Crematorium 5 that wouldn't be um, obscured by a plant barrier, okay? So he's invoking the surface depth binary in this very specific instance as something that obstructs from view, okay? Something that is going on in Auschwitz. His critique of um, uh, Claude Landsmann, which is exactly what, you know, what made this book, Didi Uberman's book, so controversial and got him into a lot of trouble with a lot of people <laughs> um, is that, I mean, it's often reduced, that critique is often reduced, I think really unjustly to his statement, uh, critical statement uh, or critical evaluation of Shoah and, and of um, Landsman's decision not to include any archival image in the book, in the film, right? But I think uh, there is something much more important going on, which is that for Didi Uberman Shoah, important as that film has been, right? So he doesn't deny that, is a film that is very much based on the surface and depth binary. And it inscribes Auschwitz or um, broader Shoah within that binary. And it's highly problematic, right? Uh, because it makes Landsman project, it shows why Landsman projects for Didi Uberman is basically a metaphysical one. It almost inserts a metaphysical core into Shoah as that which remains beyond our capacity to represent, beyond our capacity to see, and beyond our capacity to imagine. Okay, so in Landsman's Shoah, you of course have the gas chamber that is figured as uh, almost a heart of the mysterium, right? And Didi Uberman says that for Landsmann, the gas chamber uh, is basically uh, in its radical invisibility, analogous to the empty center of the Holy of Holies. What Didi Uberman does instead is he seeks to reclaim surface and surface objects such as bark, photograph paper, uh, if you like paint on walls, uh, and ceilings of the crematorium, cracks in the floor, as sites where imagination, memory can take place, where making appear can take place. Surfaces for Didi Uberman, he says, are not that which conceals the true essence of things, but that which falls from things, that which comes from them directly, which detaches itself oh, uh, from them and which thus proceeds from them which detaches itself from them to come and linger in wait for us and beneath our surface. And I will um, shortly turn to the other book and, and Skulls. And what is perhaps a bit disappointing about the book, and I, I will mention it at the end, while it also um, shows some conspicuous absences, perhaps politically, in Didi Uberman's work, 
is that he doesn't explicitly frame skull, human skull, as a memory object, which I think is really striking, given that he wants to do that with the bark, but not with the skull. And, and you could think about how politically such interventions would be at least um, equally important um, in this day and age. But let me, so let me just turn to Being a Skull, um, which is a book um, that's about um, 20 years old now. So um, it definitely comes much earlier than the bark. And I think what's so interesting about it and reading those two books together is that Being a Skull helps to grasp with more clarity the philosophic and perhaps aesthetic stakes of um, taking the notion of a material trace or a fossil as something that is um, due to the plastic capacity or plastic um, plasticity of objects um, that helps us think about objects um, as witnesses of history or inanimate witnessing, right, from the title of my paper. Um, so even though that isn't something that Didi Oberman does, I would want to suggest that the arboreal memory objects and the cranial uh, objects in both texts have much in common. Um, and that's both, that's because both are inscribed within traditionally, right, problematically for Didi Oberman, are inscribed into the binary of surface and depth. So you would you could think of bark and a skull as both kind of imagined, culturally imagined, as this lifeless covering of some precious and living store or core, right? So he, on one hand, you have the, the tree trunk protected. Um, covered by bark and then you have brain right the the precious and living core within a within a skull and as such bark and skull are both assigned the meaning of um, sort of the function of protection but also concealment right that's important for Didi Uberman um, he reads these surface objects as size of fossilizing processes as and as I and I have mentioned and plastic retainers of traces Rather than uniform, rigid, and inert structures, skulls and bark are liable, pliable, and vibrant registers of history. Indeed, the Ubermann's reading, these membranous, they are also membranous, right? So they all have layers. Um, bark, I have mentioned, but also skull, I think we tend to imagine this as a homogeneous surface, almost something that doesn't have any depth. And he wants to show that. Um, Skulls have depth and strata as well, different membranous kind of stratifications. And it's what makes them into almost, if you like, excavation sites, right? For this dual dynamic of suture and structure, uh, skulls materialize past contacts with the brain and with the external world, and also become level uh, sites of connection, uh, latent effects, and perhaps... Um, if you like, uh, contaminations. When I didn't really see it when I was writing this paper a few months back, but when I was preparing that, um, uh, that presentation yesterday, it really struck me that there is, without, of course, them referring to one another, there's a really striking uh, similarity between this way of thinking about skulls and the project that's, again, much more recent, uh, of Thomas Keenan and uh, I.L. Weisman, forensic aesthetics right in, in their little essay on uh, excavation analysis of Mengele's skull they also exactly sketch out a theory of inanimate objects 
um, in ways that perhaps are more aligned with post-humanities than Didi Oberman's, um, which for them manifest the capacity of objects to communicate uh, and divulge knowledge that have accumulated within the skulls precisely through plasticity, right? Uh, because material objects for them are impressionable, malleable, we can then read them. Okay? Uh, and also bones we can read, right? So they talk about the scientist's capacity to read bones, um, which in turn helps them define memory objects, such as Mengele's skull, as that from which traces of the subject cannot be fully removed. And I think while these, of course, are very different uh, projects, there's very... Um, there's a great level, a great, great um, deal of resonance between those those approaches. So, um, what being a skull really is is a is an analysis of anatomical and artistic representations of skulls through Western history, right? And it starts with Leonardo da Vinci, even though um, Leonardo da Vinci is actually more radical in his imagining of the skull than what we get from 19th century anatomical artists, which are really, for uh, uh, Didi Uberman, associated with this cranial imaginary as a box, right? So it's, he says in, in kind of modernity or in 19th century that we get that image of a, a, of a skull as a box, a lifeless container of the vital organ. And then he disrupts it by looking at this different kind of counter imaginaries of the skull. And one of them is uh, Leonardo da Vinci. So I'll show you the image. Uh, so that's a, that's a very famous sketch by Leonardo da Vinci of a skull. And what you see there um, on the side is an image of an onion, right? And that's a, so that's very famous uh, when he's kind of suggesting that skull is like an onion where you, that you can kind of peel layers, right? So it's a stratified layered image of a skull. I mean, it's also very provocative for Didi Uberman, because layers don't have, uh, uh, onions don't have any core, right? It's a, it's a really, uh, it's a, it's again another um, surface object par excellence, uh, has layers but no core. Uh, and what he says is that Leonardo da Vinci reveals a troubling solidarity, I, I, this is a quote now, based on contact, but also on infra-thin interstices uh, that unites the envelope with the enveloped think, right? Here the outside is nothing more than a molting of the inside, end of the quote. Another image uh, is from Durer uh, that's also, um, you can see this, there's actually two images that also he thinks subverts that idea, uh, the sort of surface depth binary as a way of imagining the skull because uh, Durer's image, the one on the right, the spiral, the famous sort of spiraled imaginary of a, of a cranium, um, is a basically a viewpoint from below. So it, kind of an impossible way, like how would you be able to see a skull from, from below, right? That, and that's the kind of, it's inscribed in Durer's artistic method. It blurs the boundaries, I guess, between the observation excavation and invention, right? Bringing to light, to the light, uh, that question that I asked before, when I said, how must we look at Bark so that we can see it as a testimonial object? Durer says, you know, how must you look at the skull so that you can see that it's, spi it's spiral, it, it's spiralness 
<laughs> that it's spiral. And then um, another image, okay, that's perhaps less recognizable, that also uh, shows ways of thinking and looking at skull as a, as a fossil. It's a contemporary art image from uh, Italian sculptor Giuseppe Pennone. And Giuseppe Pennone, um, uh, in general, uh, if you know his work, he's really interested in surface objects, right? Uh, so he's done work on bark, uh, lining, leaves, uh, eyelids. I'll show you an image, uh, a really striking image is when he makes a frottage of eyelids um, with their shared heart characteristics of being such surface objects. Um, Pannona's work is based on, we could call, a distinctive sculptural phenomenology that focuses on haptic sense perception, right? So a touch, uh, not just a way of looking, uh, as a way of eliminating distance and, and, and simulating contact, uh, malleability of the material, connecting with it as, a, as an interstices, as an adherence between the subject and object. These aesthetics and philosophic insights, I think, have a direct bearing on reimagining the skull as another um, memory object, right? Not as a cerebral container, if you like, and a, and a rigid envelope, a sheath, but as a plastic and stratified composite capable of registering, registering, registering contact, vibration, and touch. So this is a 19, the image is uh, um, a, 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 from a 1990, uh, 1990 project called The Landscapes of the Brain. Um, that technologically, actually, I am not quite a, a, able to grasp how exactly this happened, but it's a, basically an endocranial frottage. Okay, so a way of creating a model of a skull uh, in cast that uh, shows that it's not a smooth surface, but a surface that has um, is porous, right? And then applying a technique of frottage and making a photographic image. So it's basically a photographic image of a cranial frottage that you can see. And that shows, right, uh, plasticity of the cranial bow bones. Um, I mean, again, there is a really interesting um, uh, kind of, reference to Freud that Didi Uberman makes, not Pannone himself, because Freud also has a, has a kind of a famous uh, remark when he um, talks about a uh, narcissistic subject uh, and of an idea of a cranium that is shaped by the maternal pelvic bone. Okay, so he has this kind of like a biological image uh, when he talks about the narcissistic subject. Um, and anyway, we can, uh, and also uh, we can talk about it. It's, a, it's kind of a metaphor. For, I mean, it's not a biologist per se, but it's a metaphor for, for Freud uh, to think about a subject failure to detach libidinal investment from the maternal objects in life. Uh, for Pannone, the brain adapts uh, the cranial bone to its form and register cerebral pulses, right? The association between these two surface objects, and I'm kind of bringing it to an end now because um, the time is running out. Bark and skull suggest that at hand, we have cranial and arboreal imaginaries of memory. That's my kind of argument, suggestion, conclusion. 
We have a plastic strata that contains and conserves within itself imprints of history. They are, uh, and I quote from being a scow, a receptacle, an imprint bearer of the world around us that sculpts us. At the same time, it's an excavation site of my destiny, of the time that sculpts me. And in the end, it's a writing of my flesh, an ensemble of traces that uh, emit from the interior of my skull an unconscious thought, a thought that also sculpts me, end of quote. So I think kind of reading the bark and skull together uh, as witnessing two specific histories, um, you know, one specific case history of, of destruction, clarifies the idea uh, of what, it, what this project kind of entails for cultural memory studies, that's the way I started, uh, or shows one avenue for how we can think about objects and memory without um, maybe even including the discourse of, of agency. What is challenged, I think, in consequence is also a possessive model of memory, right? So memory as something that is contained, uh, of course, like classically within an individual, but I think also um, the dominant imaginary uh, of kind of containing memory, even by collective units, something that we have at the core, as if that memory is something that is within, right? So I think in the course of undoing the depth surface binary, um, Didi Uberman uh, makes a provocative uh, suggestion that we think of memory as something that's located on a surface, if you like, upon and not within. Um, political, I think, stakes of that project are also interesting because it, they question organization of habitual ways of viewing um, and the way they are inscribed in memory institutions. So museum is perhaps uh, the most striking example, but not, not the only one. The Australasian Post-Humanity Seminar Series is a digital accessible space for thinking across disciplines, time zones and travel bands. We exist to make the humanities radically accessible, so we run classes, reading groups, seminars and more all across Australasia. You can join us at aposthumanities.org. Thanks for listening and we'll see you there.